Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who buys digital ads for my own websites and in my spare time, I want to know how programmatic advertising has evolved in Asia Pacific. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Matt Harty. Welcome Matt and it's great to have you here for the first time. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Bernard. Yes, Matt Harty, you are the Senior Vice President of Asia-Pacific, the Trade Desk. It's very timely to actually have this conversation with you because I've recently heard about the Trade Desk from a podcast that I listened to called Digiday. Okay. Your founder, Jeff Green, was talking about programmatic advertising and why you're the third most important programmatic advertising company after Google and Facebook. So it's great to know what, that, what you guys are doing in Asia-Pacific. Fantastic. So before we start to talk about the trade desk and some of your thoughts on programmatic advertising and even great media trends that's going on across Asia Pacific, I want to get to know you better. How do you start your career? Okay, well, the first parts of my career actually were in finance. I got out of that after three years. That was actually at a time where the financial markets had collapsed and there was sort of no hope of finding another job in finance. And my family had been in advertising. My grandmother was in advertising. My father was in advertising. And so I, I was in the job centre in, in Bondi Junction in Sydney and I saw a, a job posting for advertising sales, $400 a week. I went and did that and had no idea that in three or four months later I'd be living in Hong Kong selling advertising for the Soviet government on the back of the Perestroika and Glasnost reforms. It was something that you just really couldn't make up. After that, I actually stayed very close to some of the people that I worked in that company with. And a few years later, a a friend of mine who I'd worked with, uh, he and I founded a company that was called Space Asia Media. We raised money from it, then um, raised further money from a Hong Kong listed company. A couple of years later, we sold it to number one digital company in the world or internet company in the world at the time which was sort of the Google of its day. That company was called CMGI. Then CMGI bought us and we went to work for CMGI. The internet crash came and uh, CMGI did not fare very well through the internet crash. After that, I I went on with other partners that I'd met through the the advertising business and uh, we then built some sort of proto-programmatic businesses. Then from there, I I went to go and work for for Fox and I I ran Fox's digital business, .fox, for a couple of years. And then I, I went to agency land and, and, and went to start the first programmatic agency in Asia, which was Acuin for, for the Omnicom Media Group. That was an amazing experience. The chance of being able to be there for the very beginning of digital advertising, because Space Asia Media was arguably the first digital advertising network in Asia. Then to be there at the beginning of programmatic, to you know, found the first programmatic agency in Asia, I can't complain for the opportunities I've been given in my career. I've been incredibly lucky to be at the beginning of, of just such massive trends. I mean, digital advertising, you know, when I got involved, it was only around 10 people doing it. Now there's you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands. Um, in programmatic, there were you know, only a dozen people or so doing it in Asia when I got involved. And then now it's, again, an industry of thousands of people. So it's just fantastic to have trends like that sort of pushing you forward. How do you eventually end up joining the trade desk? So from Omnicom, I went for a short period of time to Experian, where I was heading up 
audience products because I'm very, very interested in the actual audience side of the business. But it was a big change for me. I'd, I'd been an entrepreneur. I'd been agency world. A real corporate-like experience, I found the, I found it very difficult to operate with so much compliance and oversight and stuff like that. Not that I don't approve of those things. It just, with the speed of something like programmatic, you know, a company that is pathologically overprotective, it can be something that slows it down. And so I got the offer to come to Trade Desk and I absolutely jumped at it. So you started from Hong Kong and then you moved to Singapore, right? Absolutely. It was, it, it was actually the job with Com Media Group that, uh, that moved me here to Singapore. I want to ask you, you have been an entrepreneur, you have worked in media businesses and then of course into digital advertising. Mm-hmm. What are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience with regards to your career journey then? Well, I think that you've just got to have faith in the big trend. I knew that digital was going to be something big. I, I thought that was just completely undeniable. And I was willing to bet the farm. I, I literally got down to having only $100 US in the world in, in running my own business at one point. But I had just complete faith that, that the trend was going to was going to carry everything through. And when it came to programmatic, yeah, certainly there was a lot of resistance to, to programmatic when I first got started. And that was like nine years ago. It wasn't you know, as, as well known or as accepted as it is today. And yeah, you've just got to have faith in those big trends. So I want to come to the main topic of the day. We want to talk about the trade desk in Asia Pacific and some of the media trends that's ongoing in Asia. Mm-hmm. I want to start off by introducing the trade desk. is a global technology company offering brands and media buyers a self-service platform to manage data-driven advertising campaigns. It's founded by Jeff Green, uh, the CEO and chairman, and Dave Pickles, who's your current chief technology officer, and is currently listed on the NASDAQ, it's a public listed company. Yep. Can you give me an introduction to the trade desk and talk about its vision and mission to my audience? Well, I think the vision's the, really the right place to start. I think that one of the things that hugely attracted me to trade desk when I was a client, yeah, before I, I joined the company, and something that's stayed with me, is the purity of the vision that Jeff and Dave had for, for starting the trade desk. What they've tried to do, and I do believe that in, the, in all the years that I've been involved and beyond that, I think that they've stayed very true to that vision. And that was to imagine what the business would look like at end state. So at sort of the end of days of digital advertising, what would the company look like? And then without any compromises, build that. So not build any distractions, not build anything that ever needs to be torn down. Only build the structure that you believe is going to be there at the end. And it's that purity of vision that has made it really simple, I I think, for us to operate in other markets away from our headquarters, for us to expand into Asia, expand into Europe, because people who are managing that business, those businesses, they're able to really see the purity of, of that vision and are able to deliver on it. Part of the components that go into what the business looks like at end state, there will only be global omnichannel technologies. There aren't going to be vertical technologies, so there won't be a, a technology that only does TV or a technology that only does radio at end state. There won't be regional things. There won't be an Asia-only or a France-only technology at end state. At end state, everything is global, everything is, is, is omnichannel. So what's your current role in coverage for the trade desk? My current role is SVP for Asia PAC. My role's in, in a small amount of transition at the moment, simply because Asia's so big and Asia's so important to us. We don't sort of go along with the way that, uh, that a lot of uh, American companies or you know, multinationals have come into markets, sort of put one person in charge and, and think that that's job done. 
we've been trying to, to extend and, and, and diversify our management you know, quite aggressively in Asia. In the States, we've got a C-suite of sort of 10 people. In Asia, we kind of have to replicate something similar. We can't go with just one person carrying the can. So we've now sort of built out a structure where we've got a North Asia and a South Asia focus. We've now got people operationally running North Asia and South Asia. So Mitch Waters you know, running the, the, the South Asia portion for us, uh, Troy Yang running the, the North Asia focus for us. And that sort of frees me up to think more creatively, think more sort of horizontally, and to spend more time interacting with our, our key partners, both clients and people in our ecosystem. I find this insight about creating a management for Asia-Pacific cannot be just down to one person. In similar shoes, I, I cover Asia-Pacific. I also have to cover yep. China, India, and Asia-Pac, yep. which includes ANZ as well. So I think companies are beginning to change in terms of thinking about how they cover, they split Asia up to Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and I mean China only, and maybe someday India only. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, from my agency role, I, I was quite keen at telling people that I had all of the blame and none of the power. I think that that can happen very easily to people who are running a, a multinational. They've got to basically deliver the exact global product, and, but if it doesn't work, in their markets, then they carry the complete blame sometimes without the ability to change it. I don't believe that's the situation that we have at the Trade Desk, and I believe that our management takes the global expansion of the business uh, incredibly seriously and takes Asia. I mean, our CEO even came to live in Asia for um, around nine months of last year. I don't know of uh, many US-listed company CEOs who want to get closer to their Asia business to the point that they pack up and move there to just to get involved and to, to see how things work and particularly get closer to China. So what's the current footprint of the trade desk in Asia Pacific? I mean, I know you have a Hong Kong office, you have a Singapore office. I'm sure it's bigger than that. Yeah, so we, we talked about the hubs first, the North Asia and the South Asia hub. And so Singapore makes up the headquarters of our South, South Asia hub and it is, it, it's sort of noted as the, that's the, the, the Asia PAC headquarters. Then North North Asia is run from Hong Kong. So Hong Kong covers our office that we've got in Seoul, Korea, the office that we've got in Tokyo, and the office that we have in Shanghai in China. So that all sort of reports into the office in Hong Kong. Then when we come to the office in Singapore, that's got the office in Jakarta and the office in Sydney reporting into that. We definitely see that there's expansion opportunities yet to go in Asia. I don't think we're at the, the limit of our offices that we're going to need to be able to service the market really well, not yet. Before we get into talking about the customers for the trade desk and also the products and services that the trade desk have to solve their pain points, I think it's very important that we talk about the concept of programmatic advertising. Yeah. I think something that's pretty, maybe for some of us who are in the industry, we know what it is, but I think for the rest of the industry, it may be something new to them. So yeah. can I ask you to introduce the concept of programmatic advertising and how it works and how is it central to the trade desk operating as a company? Okay, so I think that we made a big mistake when we started digital advertising. We wanted to look so smart. We wanted everybody to think we were so smart. And we came up with all of these complicated terms. And I think that we had the opportunity with programmatic to fix that. And I think we squandered that opportunity. I think that if we would have called it something different, I think that if we would have called it programmable advertising or maybe conditional advertising, we might have got the point across. I think that programmatic advertising is more about not buying the wrong things rather than it is about buying the right things to some degree. Media's always had wastage detached and, and that's sort of where my sort of 
obsession about programmatic comes from. When I worked for Fox, Fox had the most efficient television buy for women, which was Desperate Housewives. That dates me a bit. But that was only 30% efficient. So that meant that there was 70% waste in the most accurate buy that you could make. But, yeah, 30% of that audience was measured as, as actually being the target audience. Programmatic is more about saying, well, can we make it conditional? I'm only going to buy when my conditions are met. So let's take it back to that TV buy that you said, okay, 30% of that audience is women. Well, every time that it comes back, and, and I can choose my own benchmark, my own piece of information to measure it against. I don't have to take what the vendor's telling me. I can bring my own, uh, I can bring my own vendor and I can say, okay, when this company will say, let's say that that company's Nielsen or, or that company's Comscore or that company is, is Experian, when my vendor says that that is, that is right, then I'll buy. But other than that, I don't want to buy. I want to make my advertising conditional upon that. And you can actually take that out to a fairly ridiculous extreme. By bringing different vendors in, you could say, okay, I only want to target women. I only want to target women in this particular age group, say 25 to 55. I only want to target women that have actually shown the behavior of looking at cosmetic products within the last 30 days. So think about how specific that is. And think about how that contrasts against well, I could offer you an audience that you have to buy 100%, but 30% of it is probably, or in the past, we'd be able to demonstrate that 30% of that audience was kind of right. Yeah, we've moved into an incredibly different age. Yeah, we've taken you know, what only could be done through direct marketing and we've taken that into broadcast. And I think that we underestimate just how important that is. We underestimate that time and time and time again. So when you talk about programming as in being conditional advertising, mm-hmm. so somebody has to give the inventory, probably publishers, probably platforms that actually allow you, for example, maybe a YouTube video or yeah. maybe Instagram, for example. I think one interesting part about what the trade desk, the name also makes it, that's interesting to me, it sounds like in a stock exchange, right? It, it, yep, it is. So when you call some a broker and say, hey, I want to buy this particular stock at this price, is that the best analogy to that? I think it's a good analogy. I think the financial analogies can be a little bit tricky trying to apply them to to media. I think that we've got to admit that, that media is actually, an audience is actually a commodity, that basically it is one of the most valuable commodities in the world. And when we think about it as a commodity and a commodity that should be valued, something that Jeff talks about a lot is basically you know, economic fundamentals being applied and price discovery. How do we actually value advertising? How do we, how do we say that this audience is worth this or that? And programmatic actually opens the door for there to be real price discovery around the commodity that is advertising and audience. So, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, programmatic relies on, you know, there being large pools of advertising. We reach just such enormous amounts of people. To give you an idea of scale, we actually look at somewhere in the order of around 9 million advertising auctions per second. So just let that sink in for just a second. While we've been talking, literally, the, the, the trade desk has been literally looking at hundreds of millions of advertising, weighing up whether any of our clients want to buy them, valuing those opportunities, and then actually going ahead and and executing orders where those fits are right. Uh, It's an incredible feat. I'm always humbled by 
what it is that, that actually happens under the hood. So I want to ask this, who are the customers that are treated as brands? Okay, so we're, we're probably a little bit quirky. We're an agency-focused business. We don't really work with brands directly. We do believe that, that the agency is the best overseer and they understand yeah, what's happening with the TV buyers and what's happening. They can understand the, the whole buying context. So taking out that and doing it in a silo doesn't necessarily add anything. You know, we're a business that's focused on agencies being our clients and uh, supporting the agency model. So we would be thinking of somebody like WPP. Yeah, absolutely. Starcom and all this. Yeah, a- absolutely. So yeah, we work yeah, mainly with the most digitally focused parts uh, of those agencies. But yeah, we've even done stuff with, with some creative agencies that have got particular media agendas that they're looking to execute. Can you talk about some of the interesting case studies in Asia, for example, that have done this kind of programmatic advertising? Yeah, there's a couple of cool ones. Yeah, the, the first one that I'll probably bring up, because I, I just think that it's, it's a fascinating use of, of what can be done, is we've got one client in Australia who's in the retail space. And, and what they do is they actually have got you know, a particular product that they're looking to, to sell. And they've got you know, retail stores throughout the city, and then they basically tie the stock in those stores into the campaign so that as the stock starts to sell out in one particular store, they can move geographically the mix of what they're buying to a different store. So that basically what they've done is they've, they've done what, they, what we call geofencing or basically drawing a circle around the stores. So anyone who's within a radius who can drive to that store will receive the ad for that store. You know, as that store's stock sells out, the actual money, the budget's then moved to stores that have still got stock. And um, I think that that's an incredibly fascinating thing. And uh, then if we look at another example, this one's actually a Singapore example, in what's called QSR or quick serve restaurants. They don't like being called fast food restaurants. In the QSR space, one of our clients actually, once again, drew geographic circles around all their stores and then use day parting to say, well, yeah, this is the morning rush. People are going to be eating breakfast. So it sends breakfast ads specifically to people who are within a walking distance of their stores. Yeah, Singapore is a driving country, but it's not a driving country like America is that you pull into a fast, you know, you pull into a, a, a service window somewhere in your car. That So it, it's able to focus on delivering at the right time which is delivering close to yeah to the meal time and then delivering to someone who is actually a possible customer in terms that they're geographically possible so when we go back to that idea of excluding what we don't want to buy yeah they're actually saying okay i don't want to buy anyone who's not near a restaurant i don't want to buy when it's not meal time i want to focus on where i'm likely to get the biggest win and I want to save my money. I don't want to run radio ads all day, or I don't want to. I don't want to run a, a TV spot all day. Yeah, and I don't want to run a, those spots. I don't want them to capture an audience that can't get to my restaurant. That's kind of the essence. And just making things work together to just create efficiency. That's the bit to fall in love with. You know, Matt, I enjoyed the way you put programmatic advertising as the things that you exclude. Mm-hmm. Other than the things that you include. So, what are the products and services that you, the trade desk help to solve the customers' pain points and to help them to make that exclusion? Well, I think it's applicable to virtually anything. I, I haven't been in a meeting mm-hmm. with some company yet that I've turned around and said, "Listen, I don't see there's any way we could help you." I, I think that creating efficiency for as long as the company advertises, I, I think that programmatic can find a way to create efficiencies in the buying and, and as yeah, programmatic spreads 
I mean, it's already you know, spread into audio as it's spreading more and more into TV. As it'll become the leading way that TV's purchased, will eventually become the leading way that, that outdoors purchased, we're, we're going to be able to find much greater efficiencies. One of the things that I think is you know, something that doesn't get discussed enough is something we call cross-device, which is where you're able to create multi-channel efficiency to say that, well, yeah, we've already served this person 10 TV ads. Yeah, do we really need to, to send them the, the internet and the, and the radio ads? Do they really need to see those? Is this person already at overload? And I think that because we haven't been able to tie the channels together before, yeah, that uh, something else that, that uh, I know that I'm talking about Jeff a lot, but another thing that Jeff had said is that yeah, we're an industry that spends almost a trillion dollars making people hate us. Um, and and that's yeah, that, that's got a lot to do with yeah just to, we, we've not had the controls to be able to yeah deliver advertising as a reward deliver advertising as in a, a convenience to be able to know what people are actually yeah wanting what they're shopping for and to be able to deliver them advertising that's actually going to serve to help them connect with the products and the services that they're after or yeah create aspirational things to help people you know create goals to move forward in their lives i, I think that Advertising can be an incredibly positive force. I just think that the tools that we've used up until this point have been pretty rudimentary, and programmatic offers us a, a path forward towards you know, creating a much better form of advertising. See, I'm a brand, right? I work, I do cosmetics. I tell my creative agency to work on a trade desk, for okay. example. So in your platform, what will happen is that you will give certain options for the agency to buy is that how it works like is it different channels as in creating that audience pool that you you want to specifically target and not give them so there's a lot that the agency does the agency will actually have a larger communication strategy that they're working towards and parts of those strategies will be you know geographic things like you know we want to concentrate on on singapore or we want to concentrate on particular parts of singapore and then there'll be demographic elements to it as well so they'll say well we want to it's cosmetics we want to you know target women mostly we want to you know target yeah we would we, also then looking for behavioral cues because we might want to target you know people who are you know going to be more likely to be larger consumers of cosmetics and try and move away from groups that we think that are going to be less interested in consuming cosmetics Really, all that, that the communication is trying to do is to try and make that message useful and try and deliver it to the most engaged audience. And programmatic is is a fantastic tool for helping remove those audiences that are that are not going to be statistically the most relevant. To come back to the point of the exclusion, which is what what is happening now, is that there's a lot of backlash on Google and Facebook serving the wrong digital ads. In fact, I think in the US there is a Twitter handle that's called the Sleeping Giant, where they try to call out brand ads being shown onto sites that we're not supposed to see. I guess, how does the trade desk navigate against such risk? Because you're already doing exclusion, so is, is it easier for you? Yeah, okay, so I think that that basically the, the protecting of brands is a responsibility that, that permeates every level of the supply chain mm-hmm. in advertising. And I think that one thing that I think the trade desk does really well is it allows each level of the supply chain to be able to introduce its own level of protection. So, for example, we're talking about marketplace that we go to the auction and, and buy from. It's their responsibility to create and provide a, a safe marketplace with clean and good inventory. So it's their responsibility to deliver that. But 
the responsibility doesn't end there. It's our responsibility as the buyer, or as the, as the buying technology, to add an additional layer. And we do with a, a tie-up with a company called White Ops. And White Ops aren't a, an ad tech company. They're a proper <laughs> anti-fraud company that does credit cards and all sorts of stuff like that. So we introduce that layer on top of the layer that, that the marketplace introduces. And then our clients are free to bring whichever vendor that they want. So literally, you know, all major vendors of protection products, whether that be anti-fraud or whether that be you know, protecting against you know, viewability or, or other things like that, they can layer that stuff in and that can be made bespoke to their needs. So say, for example, you know, advertisers from China have got particular things that they you know, can't do and they need particular protections to make sure that they don't fall foul of, of Chinese laws. You know, someone in the travel space might want to avoid, uh, think about the, particularly the, the alcohol market has got all sorts of things that it needs to get into compliance. We think that that's, that's fantastic. One of the, the problems that I think that the wall gardens have is they only really introduce one point of protection and that's them and in most cases they don't want to be questioned about it they don't leave it open to be audited i think that that's a mistake because i really do think that every element should be participating in in protecting the, the client so i want to switch the conversation out of the trade desk now i want to talk about the trends of digital advertising and media across asia pacific okay. so you cover asia pacific yep what are the key trends that Asia-Pacific is leading the way in emerging media consumption habits. I think that emerging media is easier to answer than, uh, than emerging media consumption. Just a note on media consumption, I think that the whole world's media consumption trend is, is going pretty much in the same direction. And that is that people want what they want when they want it. So sitting around waiting for your show to come on is something that people find really difficult. And, I mean, I think early passes at that where, you know, America had this big thing with DVR. You basically wait for it all to fill in a box and then you go and look at what's in your box. Even that's just not nearly as attractive as just everything being available to you all the time. And, you know, it, it's happened with Spotify. It's happened with, with Netflix. It's basically the way that people want to consume. And I don't think that that's an Asia thing. But I do think that when it comes to connected TV, I think that Asia is definitely leading the way. I think China is leading the way. I mean, there's some of the statistics of just single shows in China are just terrifying in how many people have watched it. Yeah, streams in the billions. It's truly amazing. So I think that in audio, I think that Australia is yeah, part of Asia. I'll claim Australia is part of Asia being Australian. But yeah, we've seen faster audio growth there than, than we've seen anywhere in the world in terms of people wanting to buy their media programmatically. Uh, sorry, their, their audio programmatically. So I, I think that Asia's could, you know, basically consuming media in step with the rest of the world. But I do think that because we are mobile first in so many markets, we've got the ability to just get deeper, faster. And say if I'm a chief marketing officer in Asia Pacific today, and given that, as you point out, there's so many channels, right? There is the traditional channels. Mm-hmm. I think even today I would classify social media platforms as traditional channels. We haven't seen the new ones coming up yet. Okay, yeah, no, they're, yeah. they're, they're certainly well established. Yeah. So what are the key challenges for someone like that who needs to plan how they're going to do their marketing, their media buying? What are the challenges that you think they would face? Well, I mean... The, the rate of change and staying on top of what wasn't available last week and what is available this week. I think that the biggest thing that's ever going to happen in the history of advertising in my lifetime, talk about, you know, I, I love the big trend, is connected television. 
Connected television will change everything. The total landscape that of the advertising industry when I came into it will be unrecognisable, I believe, in as, as little as 24 months. We are, we're, at the, we're at the beginning of possibly the biggest trend. Maybe I misspeak a tiny bit in that maybe the internet, you know, when I came in to, to work you know, with, with advertising in the, in the internet, I knew the internet would transform it. I had no idea that the internet would you know, eventually become TV at that time. So I, I think that you know, connected TV is, a, is an extension of that long-term internet trend. But I do believe that as a singular thing, it will be the biggest change that will, ever ha- that will happen in my lifetime in, in media. For that person in that role, does it mean that they have to leverage on big data and even potentially AI in the future? Because the scale, as you pointed out, is so big, right? There's, like The Chinese is actually watching a, a particular TV show for a billion times. How are they going to cope with this kind of overload of the media content that's going across our smartphones? So, I mean, going back to that China example, it's changed the way that television advertising works in China. Have you watched some of these Chinese shows? Yes, I do. Um, so you see that the ads are actually characters from the show in costume doing product placement that's not actually part of the show. And so they've been able to actually rewrite things. It's almost like you know, what people were doing with 1950s soap operas, that the advertising was so integral to the property. I think that those opportunities are things like that are just... For the CMOs to know what people are watching and to be able to move fast enough to be able to capitalise you know, before their competitors do, you know, the challenge is speed, I, I really believe. And going back to you know, what, what Trade Desk does, we do 9 million ad opportunities a second. You know, the, the, the world's getting faster. So, like for example, right, if you think about it today, Netflix is the distribution layer, but mm-hmm. they own their own content, right? Yeah. You could foresee one day they're going to go into advertising, right? But not advertising in the traditional sense we think. In fact, they're not calling things like giving you TV content where you can make choices to what the characters do as well. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, can we totally rely on this change? Basically, like for example, some parts of it will be automated and some parts of it will be done by artificial intelligence to give the most effective marketing to the audience, or do we still need to be guided by human beings? Okay, so we've got to realise that AI is a tool. Yeah, that's right. Just like all other tools, I mean, to to chop a piece of wood, you need to use an axe and an axe as a tool, that you're not going to be able to chop that piece of wood with your hand. So the, the tool is a necessary extension of the human. AI is, is another tool. You know, we need to decide what we want AI to do. And in the case of you know, what we're doing with programmatic is we've said, well, let's make our buys more efficient. And you know, the, the, the AI algorithms that I worked with when I first started in programmatic in, in 2011, you know, they were fairly simplistic. They weren't sort of point and, you know, point, just sort of fire and forget type technologies. They, were, they, they needed active and constant participation. We are getting closer to fire and forget technologies, but you still need to aim them and fire them. It comes down to you know, how much labour is available, how important is it to get it right, and then how much can we trust the machine. And, and you know, part of our earlier conversations is that as humans, we're not terribly comfortable to let machines do everything, and probably for good reason, because you know, we've got... You know, very reliable technology platforms that we carry in our pockets and we carry through our lives, they go wrong. We have every you know, belief that, that something will go wrong. There has to be a human in the link to be able to say, all right, it's time to switch this to manual. It's time to take control. You know, this isn't operating within parameters. And I, I think that's hugely important.
And where do you see this programmatic advertising go in the next two, three years? Given that you said that things are moving so fast now. I think that it's going to take an increasing role in TV. I think it's going to take an increasing role in radio. It's going to take an increasing role in outdoor. And really, it's because of just efficiencies that are going to be created. You know, to some degree, accountants rule the world and the accountants are not going to let us do advertising the old-fashioned way because there's just going to be very obvious inefficiencies that can be solved. And going back to that media wastage, why do you keep buying advertising that's got 70% built-in waste where you have an option to buy 100% accurate? And I doubt that we're going to get to a tipping point where it's cheaper to buy it inefficiently than it is to buy it efficiently. Because the people who are selling that that inventory, that are basically selling that 30% of female and left with 70%, they're then free to go to sell that to somebody else. In the other oppo- the other side, they would have sold that 100%. So even if they get a relatively the same price or a little bit less for selling it accurately, they've still got 70% of their asset to go out and capitalise. That sounds very interesting. So let me then just probe you a little bit on this then, right? Okay. What happens when, because you're so efficient, but we have more demand, then wouldn't that be going for more supply then? But if we've got more demand, then we're going to have more media consumption and we're going to have more advertising opportunities. I, I don't see... One of the things I love about advertising, I don't believe it's a zero-sum game. I really don't believe that. I think that as we move from terrestrial television to connected television, we're going to create more streams. So think about... Okay, so I grew up you know, in, in, during the 70s and 80s and I would sit and watch television with my parents and that was kind of it. I look at, at family life today... And, you know, you've, you've got, you know, one person or two people watching TV in the living room and another one or two people on mobile devices doing something completely different. They're opening up more streams that, that, that you know, what was a communal activity is becoming more and more an individual activity. And that's going to create a great deal more opportunity and a lot more, a lot more granularity for us to be able to reach the right audiences. And I think this is the perfect segue to stop here. So okay. Matt, many thanks for coming on the show. I've actually benefited a lot from just talking to you and the way how I thought about programmatic advertising has actually changed after I think you're being too kind. <laughs> but in closing, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast or anything that recently made an impact to your personal work life? Sure. I, I, there's, there's a book called Misbehaving. I can't remember who the author is, but it's a book about the foundations of behavioural economics, which doesn't sound very exciting. But it's, it's actually written in a, in, a, in a very sort of storytelling kind of way. Um, it's a very approachable book on, on the subject. And it sort of has, has made me believe that you know, possibly uh, you know, in the first few years of, of programmatic, we've been looking at the wrong types of scientists. We've hired a lot of actuaries, uh, and actuaries are great, and they, 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 they've provided an enormous amount of depth that we never had. But I do believe that the future will be owned by soft scientists. Uh, I believe that economists in particular and psychologists have got an incredibly important role in the future of advertising. And that book really helped solidify that belief for me. Another book that, that I would love to promote is a book called The Rational Optimist. Have you read that? I one? read it. Um, so that's made its rounds throughout throughout senior management. I do believe that it's, it's that it's a seminal book. And Bill Gates says that yeah, the Better Angels of Our Nature is the most important book ever written. Pinker's book on on the statistics of violence. And I think that the Rational Optimist can save you reading through Pinker's enormous book to get the value that you would get. You know, in the chapter that Rational Optimist deals with the same topic. But yeah, both of those books I would I would highly recommend.
recommend. Mm. And then how can my audience find you? So it, to, to find the company, uh, yeah, we're, we're available at, uh, at, at thetradedesk.com. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're available in most you know, uh, social media channels as well, you know, also as The Trade Desk. And to find me, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, and I'm very happy to help guide anybody you know, into thinking about how they need to, uh, you know, how they need to sort of interface with the, the future coming technologies. I'm truly passionate about you know, where we're going and what we're doing. And just Google me at Bernard Leung. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play in the US market. And of course, tweet to me. If you have any feedback, give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help us in being discovered or star in Pocket Cast and Overcast. Once again, this episode is actually co-produced by myself and Carol In, and we will look forward to actually going to send out the audience survey in the coming weeks. So look out for it and give us your feedback. So once again, Matt, Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Bernard.